If you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. In the Pew Bible, that will either be on page 750 or 860, depending upon which Bible you have before you. The first chapter of John's Gospel, we will be reading verses 1 through 18. And as you just heard before we read, I want to remind you that this is God's very word, God's holy word. I ask that you please give its reading your full attention. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We praise you, O word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who has made known the Father's glory, who has lavished upon us grace upon grace, who sent your spirit to speak the the words of truth. Please, living word, give us ears that can hear and eyes that can see that we might behold your glory this day. It's in the sacred name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. When I was 17 years old, physics was by far my least favorite class in high school. Perhaps there's a physics teacher here or someone else. My apologies if that is your special interest in life. But when I was 17, it was not. And we had this huge project that our group was tasked with of creating a big Rube Goldberg contraption where a marble will roll down a a plane and fall into a thing and jump over something. And needless to say, there was a group of four 17-year-old guys who were supposed to do this project. And one one of the fathers of one of the other guys in the group basically built the entire thing in his garage one night. 
But at the day of the competition, I was so extremely confused by one of my group members who actually brought their Bible with them to the science fair thing at my high school. And they were really nervous that our Marvel project might not actually work. And they thought that by bringing their Bible, it would somehow, they, weren't, they did not bring their Bible to open it, to talk about Jesus, to share something with me, but they just wanted to have their Bible with them there as if it were a magic rabbit's foot or something that would give power that we could harness and control for our purposes. But also in the group, this sounds like I'm setting up a joke or something, but also in the group was an atheist who actually was from a former Soviet state. He was a foreign exchange student who loved Richard Dawkins, and to me, we became good friends over shared music interests, and to me, he just, he just said, this is the epitome of why religion is bad. Um, look how foolish these Christians are with their Bible. We use electric lights and refrigerators. How can you believe this ancient book and treat it as authority in your life? And this was very confusing to me. I had been following Jesus for a few months. I knew a, a, a one or two things about Jesus, but not very much, and didn't know what to make of all of this. And the reason I tell you that story is I think that some of us here can resonate with a few of those things. The Bible is um, a mystery to many of us here gathered today and in our society at large. And this morning, I've been tasked with speaking on the topic of sola scriptura. As you know, you're, if you've been here in weeks past, this church is currently commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation by looking at five themes from the Reformation. And today we're looking at the theme of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our highest authority. To, to explain what that means, I actually would like you to open your hymnal, if you would. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. But if you will turn in your hymnal to page 849, there's a very succinct summary of what the point of this message is about today. Actually, from the first chapter of the Westminster Confession, which is one of the, a part of the constitution of this church. Page 849 in Westminster Confession, chapter 1. Chapter 1, section 10, starts with an X. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be to examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. Now that sounds very nice to have in the bylaws of some organization, but what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me in this church? If we're talking about how the Bible is our authority, why are we opening a confession of faith to talk about that? It's because this is a very great summary of what the Bible teaches, that the, the only one in whose sentence we are to rest is the Holy Spirit, God himself speaking in Scripture. To, this morning, I'm going to briefly talk about why that was important in the time of the Reformation, some challenges for believing it today, and give you some final exhortations about that. So first of all, during the time of the Reformation, there was a real crisis of authority. In the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, there was, it was unclear what the, the authority was in matters of faith and life. And some of our Protestant forebears, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin, were insistent that Scripture is to be the final authority to which appeal can be made for faith and life. And this especially came about in debates about, is it the traditions of men? Is it the, the opinions of people? Is it the decisions of the church's tradition that are to settle what we are to believe and do? 
And Martin Luther and John Calvin, were, and other, among others, were insistent that it is Scripture alone that is to be our authority. And this was especially spelled out in what the Protestant tradition, reflecting on the Scriptures, came to regard as the attributes of Scripture, or the perfections of Scripture. And there were four. The sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity of the Bible. If you like an acronyms or abbreviations, it's SCAN. Sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. We're going to briefly talk about those. First, they insisted that Scripture alone is to be our authority because the Bible is sufficient for our, our life and faith. As Second Peter says, that we have all we need for life and godliness in Scripture. Scripture is sufficient for you. And this is widely questioned today, not only by the culture that disregards scriptures, the scriptures, but even in American Christian churches. Um, that's great that you have the Bible, but what you really need is this special speaker or this special series of teachings, or if you would come to these events and conferences or be around these celebrity Christian personalities, then you would really be important and really have the secrets to the Christian life. Alternatively, um, Often the sufficiency of scripture is undermined when people say, I don't want to read an old book. I want to hear God's very voice speaking to me. And people write books where they allegedly hear the voice of Jesus giving new messages today. But the, the letter to the, the Hebrews in the New Testament says that that's essentially impossible because not that God is bound in any way, but Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thinking that you need something in addition to scripture is like being at a restaurant and your cup is already full of coffee and you demand the waiter to come over and keep filling your cup. Putting anything else in it is impossible. You already have all that you need in Christ. As the hymn, How Firm a Foundation says, what more can he say? God has spoken to you by his son. His word is sufficient for us in that way. Secondly, they insisted that scripture alone is our authority because of the clarity of Scripture. The Scriptures are clear. They can be understood. This is sometimes called the perspicuity of Scripture, if you need a $3 word. By saying that the Scriptures are clear, that can easily be misunderstood. Um, it, perhaps you're here and you're skeptical about everything being said today. And you can say, how can you say the Bible is clear? There are so many churches just in this area who all disagree about every last thing in the Bible. Isn't Christian history full of controversy and debate about every last doctrine? What do you mean when you say that the scriptures are clear? When the reformers were insisting that the scriptures are clear, they did not mean that every last matter in all of the, the Bible is obvious. What they meant by that is that what is essential and needed, necessary to be known can, can, is plainly accessible to all. And that is true because of the work of the Holy Spirit, as we spoke about a moment ago. The way that this is put in 1 Peter, which our church just recently finished going through. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, Concerning salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What is necessary to be known is clear, not because of necessarily it's just obvious itself, but the scriptures are clear because the Holy Spirit speaks through them to bring to us to the knowledge of what we need to know in Christ. The clarity of scripture is um, often used in a way, uh, it, it could be compared to a child visiting the ocean with a professional swimmer. Um, a child can, the, the ocean is so large and grand that someone could swim in it and never touch its bounds. But it's so simple that a child can get in it and understand it. The clarity of scripture is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us to the saving knowledge of those things which we need to know in Christ. Um, this is not to say that we do not need um, disciplined, trained study of the word of God, especially its parts that are hard to understand. But what is essential and necessary is available to us because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Third, they insisted on the authority of Scripture. This is widely undermined in our day, both within the church and without often. From without, it's easy to, for our culture to um, ridicule Christians of, how can you claim to, to live your life on the Word of God? Um, how can you entrust this ancient book and use it as the authority over your life? It's often undermined by you and I. This is not speaking theoretically about other people. Talking about me, talking about you, this is undermined because we want to be our own Lord. We want to have our own autonomy and be our own master. I'll come to the text. I'll find the things that I like. I'll sift the wheat and chaff and blow over the parts that aren't appealing to me. The scriptures are widely abused um, in history by people who come to the scripture with their own biases, their own political agenda, and they find something in scripture to justify themselves and hold up their own voice as the word of God. The authority for which scripture is to be obeyed is that it is the word of the Lord to us, his servants. When we come to, scriptures, to, to the scriptures, it is authoritative because it is the word of God. Last, they emphasize that scripture is necessary. And this is an important point. We need the scriptures not because we lack information. That is true. We need to have the saving information about Christ. But notably, in John chapter 1, it does not say that the word was with God and the word was published in a paper for everyone to read. What was needed was to, for the word to become flesh and dwell amongst us. We needed the saving reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's not that people who don't have the word of God simply need information. The problem is that we are dead. We can do nothing with the information until the Spirit of God makes us alive and unites us with Christ so that we can be savingly joined to Jesus Christ. And this, is, is, this point is brought out well by um, a, a, more, a recent theologian, a, a theologian who recently passed away, John Webster. And he indicates that the creaturely act of reading Holy Scripture is an event in the history of God's self-giving to humankind. And this is a problem especially because of idolatry and our ignorance. Sin as ignorance means that as sinners, we are busy with the production of images to hold down, reject, or alter the matter of the gospel so that its gracious judgment can be neutralized or averted by something of our own invention. 
we do not read well. And we do not read well not only because of our limited faculties intellectually, cultural distance from the Bible, the biblical texts, or that we, we lack readerly sophistication, but also, and most of all, because in reading Scripture, we are addressed by that which runs clean counter to our will. Reading Scripture is a moral matter. It requires that we become certain kinds of readers whose reading is taken up into the history of God's reconciliation of the world. The separation of reason from virtue in our time has made this very difficult for us to grasp. But it means that reading Scripture is an instance of being a Christian, which means dying and rising with Jesus Christ through the purging and quickening power of the Holy Spirit. Reading Scripture is thus best understood as an aspect of mortification and vivification. To read Scripture is to be slain and made alive. And because of this, because our will being renewed, it's conformity to the gospel. And it's so crucial that we enter into a kind of brokenness, a relinquishment of willed mastery of the text, so that we are renewed in the knowledge of God. I'd like to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the Word of God was with God in the beginning, and that it was through God's Word that the heavens and the earth were created. In Genesis, we encounter the story of God's creation of all things by the power of His Word. And after the creation fell into an estate of sin and death by humanity's rebellion against God, God did not abandon His creation. But the word of the Lord appeared to our forefathers and promised Abraham blessing that would be to all nations. The word of the Lord came um, through Moses to secure the inheritance promised to Abraham, Christ himself already being revealed in the events of the Exodus. God made a covenant with his people. And the word of the Lord came to David and promised him a kingdom that would never end. The word of the Lord is powerful. It is um, called a sword in Revelation, in, or in, in Hebrews, it's a, a story coming out from the mouth of Jesus in Revelation. But in Psalm 29, we are called to awe and reverence at the authority of God's word. Where Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of the Lord comes to his people through the prophets. And it is often an unsettling word. The word of the Lord in our time is often thought of as not something that we necessarily need. It's just a nice add-on in our lives. We are essentially upright people, and we just need a little encouraging boost to get through this week or something. But the word of the Lord is the word of God addressing his creation. It is the word of the Holy One addressing sinners. It accosts us. Listen to the word of the Lord from Isaiah, how it encounters his people in Isaiah chapter 1. God says to his people, When you come to appear before me, 
Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of you bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The word of the Lord in Amos says, I wish you would stop singing to me while you're oppressing orphans and widows. Let justice flow down like mighty waters, is the word of the Lord in Amos. But sinners don't just need the word of the Lord announced to them. We needed the word of the Lord to become as we are, that we might become like the word of God. And we just read about this in John chapter 1. If you'll notice in the passage that we read together in John chapter 1, it is not that there was just a giant billboard created in the sky with the secret magic words you need to know in order to be saved or in order to be enlightened. What happens in verse 14 is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the temple, the tabernacle, was the place of God's dwelling with men. And the same word is used here to say that God tabernacled among us. Jesus calls his own flesh and blood a temple in John chapter 2. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. A few exhortations I would give to you here in closing is that the word of God is the self-revelation of the Trinity. That might sound like some theology that you don't quite know what to do with as you return to your job this week, or frustrating situations um, with your family, or difficult dynamics at home in the midst of your suffering. But it is not just that there is some faraway God, and we have some secret mysteries in this ancient book. Through Scripture, the Trinity reveals itself to us, The Father has given us his word and now is speaking by the Holy Spirit. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus mentions how the Holy Spirit will come and testify concerning me. Testifying to Christ is the job of the Holy Spirit. And and if you'll notice with me, verse 18 of John chapter 1. This is a spectacular verse. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Because of the infinite, not because of the distance between creator and creatures, we could not see God. But the creator has made himself seeable to us. In Colossians 1, Jesus has called the image of the invisible God. It's not merely that Jesus came and revealed God. Jesus is God revealed. Secondly, this word is light in the darkness. If you'll look with me at John chapter 1, um, in verse 9, or in verse 4, sorry. In in the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not apprehended it. There's a bit of a play on words here with apprehended. The darkness has not only not understood the word, the darkness has not seized or overcome the light. Brothers and sisters, those of us who dwell in the midst of darkness, those of us who have darkness in our own souls, 
those of us who are all bent and broken from being God's good creation. We are turned in on ourselves. Our hearts are constant idol factories. We are constantly seeking, putting other things in the place of God in our lives. By nature, we hate God and our neighbor. And we, even those of us who claim the gospel of Christ, we are constantly tempted to put ourselves at the forefront of everything, to have a disordered love of self above God and love of others. Those of us who would even come to the word and want to justify us, our own selves, and our sin through the word. The good news of the gospel is that the light shines in the darkness. But amazingly in John's gospel, the light shining in the darkness is not one glorious, impressive triumph over another by Jesus. The light shining in the darkness in John's gospel is the story of a crucified Messiah, rejected by men, who suffers. Jesus in John's gospel gets tired and sits down because he's thirsty at the well. And ultimately, he is rejected by men. He suffers and dies on their behalf. But it is through Christ's sufferings, his death and his resurrection from the dead, that light has already overcome darkness. The light is not yet here in its fullness until Christ returns. But one day, there will be no more need of sun. There will be no more need of lamps because the glory of God will be in the dwelling place of men. We have already seen that light shoot into this current darkness in the resurrection of Christ. And one day, it will be fully manifest here. We look forward to that day. But it is important to note that this word is, is cruciform. It's in the shape of a cross. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he makes it clear that the word of the cross is fully, it, it's, it's foolishness, it's folly to the world. It's a stumbling block to others. But this word, which is folly and weakness, is actually the power and wisdom of God. Standing for the truth of God's word will not always be a popular thing. In America, probably just by nature of being in a democratic society, it's very easy to think that anything that's popular, anything that um, is in an important city or has a wide following, obviously must be good or obviously must be true. You are called to be faithful to this word, whether it brings you wins or losses in your life. You are called to be like the man in Psalm 5 who swears to his own hurt. As the Lord Jesus addressing the church in, at Smyrna in Revelation, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This word, which comes as the word of the cross, calls us to follow Christ in the way of the cross. And last, this word commissions us. If you'd like to turn with me to John chapter 17, a little bit to the right. Just a few more verses. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. This is one of the most amazing moments in the Bible. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he prays this spectacular prayer to the Father. And he towards the end of it, he says in John 17, verse 17, he prays to the Father, essentially on behalf of us, who will hear the gospel, um, through the, the disciples. He says, he's praying for his disciples, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. You are commissioned by this word to share this word with others. Scripture alone, being our final authority, means that the Holy Spirit revives us 
to speak truthfully about God and act righteously in this world, acting on behalf of the orphan and widow, as Isaiah and Amos made clear, standing against those who would like to use God's word in ways that are contrary to God's purposes, as has recently happened at numerous white supremacist rallies in recent weeks where people have used verses from the Bible to justify their hateful and anti-God messages. We are called by this word to be sanctified. All of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul devoted fully and only and exclusively to Jesus Christ so that when anyone else or anything else claims your allegiance, your allegiance is ultimately to Christ alone and no other. He is our Lord. He has called us to be sanctified in his word, which is truth. And we live in a world that desperately needs this message of salvation. Your coworkers, your family, your colleagues, your acquaintances, the guys that you awkwardly say hi to with a nod at the gym, they don't just exist in your life for you to um, never be uncomfortable with and for you to just make, make much of yourself. Your chief end is not to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. As we're about to say, you exist to glorify and enjoy God forever, to love your neighbors and give them this sacred and imperishable message of salvation in Christ. If you'll please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that scripture alone is our authority. We pray, O oh God, that your word would be the supreme judge in whose sentence we rest, not as some abstract theory for how our church governs or has bylaws or something to that effect. God, in our lives, in my life, make us people who rest in your Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture as our final authority, as your Spirit testifies to the crucified Christ who calls us to follow in the way of the cross, that we might also participate in his resurrection life. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that while no one has ever seen God, we have beheld the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that your word is a means of grace. And now as we come to the table where we encounter the flesh and blood of Christ, please help us so to participate in his, his flesh and blood that we would live lives of godliness, pursuing holiness, boldly confessing the faith we have discussed here today. Let us leave changed persons for having encountered you in your means of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.